Welcome to Hustle Up's The Big Break, where we talk to showrunners, directors, executives, and other talented people working in the entertainment industry about how they got their start and what they've done to fast forward their creative careers. I'm H. Schuster, the founder and CEO of Hustle Up. And today I'm chatting with my longtime friend and former colleague, David Eilenberg, vice president and head of content at Roku Media. Join us for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. David Eilenberg is the vice president and head of content for Roku Media, leading the charge to establish Roku's free ad-supported streaming service, the Roku Channel, as a destination for original scripted and unscripted content. In his prior role as head of Roku Originals, Eilenberg and his team shepherded Weird, The Al Yankovic Story, Meet Me in Paris, The Great American Baking Show, Martha Cooks, Emerald Cooks, and many more for millions of viewers. And before joining Roku, Eilenberg served as chief creative officer at ITV America, responsible for the company's creative strategy and growth opportunities across six production labels. Among the many series he spearheaded are the Emmy-winning Queer Eye on Netflix, Love Island, Fox's Hell's Kitchen, The Chase, My Mom, Your Dad on HBO Max, and Rat in the Kitchen. And prior to ITV, Eilenberg was senior vice president of unscripted development, late night and specials at Turner, where he oversaw Conan, starring Conan O'Brien, among other series. Before that, Dave was head of development and current programming for Mark Burnett Productions, where we worked together back in the day. Okay, I've known you for a long time. I feel like uh, you never sleep. Welcome, yeah. David Eilenberg, and thank you for being on The Big Break. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to have this conversation today. Uh, I, I feel like you are a, a quadruple threat, whatever that looks like. You're not only a talented producer and writer, you're also an incredibly successful executive. And not everybody has both of those skills, right? Tell us the differences between being the creative talent, making the, pro the project, and then being the executive who oversees the project. Sure. I mean, I think the biggest difference for me experientially is when you're a producer on a project, um, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. It is what everybody is thinking about 24-7. And there's a sort of unidirectionality to it that I think is really appealing. Um, as an executive, it's almost the reverse because you're so often dealing with multiple projects on any given day. You're managing internally and externally. It's much more about the ability to multitask effectively. Um, and so... You know, I've had the pleasure of doing both. And even in executive capacities where I've spent more of my time in recent years, um, I've sometimes been called upon to really concentrate on a single big show for at least a few weeks just to make sure it's in good shape. And I've always enjoyed the experience of getting to go back and do that again. That's awesome. And if you weren't an executive at Roku, what would you want to be creating right now? Is there is there like a passion project? Is there something you're like, oh, I want to get my hands on that? Yes, I I think what's happening in the doc space is so interesting right now. And I'm a consumer of docs. It's the part of Unscripted where actually I've spent the least time as a producer and an, an, an executive. Um, but as a viewer, I love them. And so if I were uh, just sort of cut loose to go make stuff. I would be looking at documentaries, doc series. I just think it's it's an incredible time to be producing that sort of content. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, and, you know, 
little known fact about David Eilenberg, you have also done stand-up comedy. Now, what's it like getting up on that stage as sort of, you know, the person that's gonna, gonna make the room laugh? I terrifying, of course. I think it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's something I challenged myself to do. I performed a handful of times. And this was probably a good sign of where my career would point me. I realized pretty quickly that I would much rather write jokes that somebody else delivered than have to be the one to deliver them myself. And so I think, um, you know, that that's in some ways an analogy for what I've gone on to do, which is hopefully help elevate other great creative voices by giving them the right platform, the right support. Um, and that's been a, a great joy to have a career in which I can do that. That's a, that's a really that's a really elegant connection you're making. I, I I was the same way. I did you know briefly in my college career open mic nights and and tried to get up and and tell jokes and the the terror of doing it uh, w- overcame the joy of making people laugh when I was on stage. So I, I felt the same way. Like you know I would much rather write and produce and direct and and find my place behind the scenes. Tell us a little bit about how you found your way to Roku. And, and I think, you know, you're in this interesting position that a number of executives are now in the media business where you're working for a media company that's also a tech company. Tell us a little bit about what, what that's like. Yeah, I was, uh, I was part of a very formal recruitment process for Roku, which is actually the first time that I've found a job that way. Um, you know, as we know in entertainment, so often it's your friend calls because something's open and it's fairly informal. This was much more formal and rigorous. And, uh, you, you know, you I go just, through I, the loops, right? Where you go, you go in and they sit you in a room and they cycle people through and you talk to like 87 people in a day and they all have the questions they're supposed to ask, right? This is, this is sort of the Silicon Valley tech company method of, of, of recruiting, right? Indeed. And it was, it was a really interesting very rigorous process. And, and um, I, I just got very excited about the company as part of it. Um, so yes, Roku is uh, a tech company. It's the number one streaming platform in the US, Canada, and Mexico. And what that means is the company- That was, that was good how you slipped that in. That was impressive. Oh, See, that's why they need that. you. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I, I think what it means is that the company has tremendous home screen scale. So yeah. for 70 million households, which is to say- about 170 million people when they turn on. Yeah, their, you guys were just in variety, right? For hitting 100 million, was it? Was that? Is that the right number? Uh, it's probably going up exponentially every day. It, 100 million for the Roku channel, but then the Roku platform um, as a home screen gets to even more than that, right? So the it's Roku amazing. channel is our proprietary AVOD channel. It's now a top 10 streaming service um, in the country and certainly top five on our own platform, but even beyond that, it's it's the home screen. So for uh, more Americans than any other service, when they turn on their television and you have your menu with all of your apps on it, that's our platform that you're using. So um, you know, at the at the heart of the company is the thesis that all television will eventually be streamed, and therefore all ads will eventually be streamed. I think we see that shift happening holistically and quickly. And what we want to make sure of is that if there are only going to be two or three operating systems, as there are with phones and computers, that Roku is one of them and ideally number one. 
Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I think I saw in, in Variety, maybe in that same article in Variety, that you guys are now going to be doing interactive uh, food ordering with DoorDash, right, off of the ads. So you guys have a mm-hmm. platform where you can really uh, expand in a lot of very interesting directions, right? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I think um, as TV gets smarter, there are certain things that we've relied on our phones and computers to do that are going to be able yeah. to happen on our TVs and and commerce is part of that. All of that said, I think people mostly turn on their TVs to be entertained and we want to be we want to be careful that that goal is always first and foremost in mind. I think it's interesting, right? When you and I were back uh, in the Mark Burnett days and then and then for me after that at 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 Reveille at, uh, with with you know Ben and and Howard I can remember people coming in and taking meetings with us early, like, I guess we would call them tech companies, but they were sort of trying to figure out how do we, how do we do interactive on a TV when really the hardware was not there yet, right? The ideas were there about like, how do we make uh, a game show that you can interact with while you're sitting in front of your TV? Or how do we make a commercial that you can, you know, a show where where the, the content in the show is is purchasable right there on your TV? And it, it's interesting that like all those ideas were, were percolating 10 years ago in our business, but now you guys actually have the hardware to execute on a lot of those things, right? Yeah. I don't know if you had this experience, but I feel like in that first round of conversations, the example was always Jennifer Aniston's sweater. I'm not sure why that <laughs> became the thing, but it was always just like, we want something where you can buy Jennifer Aniston's sweater. I was like, that must be right. an right. amazing sweater in whatever episode you could, of Friends You could buy her like. haircut, but then Chris McMillan would be coming to your house and that would be weird. So <laughs> uh, so, so no, I think you're right. Like a lot of things, um, you know, the idea has been there for quite some time and it's just taken a while for the tech to become smooth enough. Um, yeah. But I think you know, uh, all of TV started with people wanting to buy something that they saw on TV. It's just now a question of what are pathways that we can create that make that even easier. And and for us, a lot of it is going to just start with the remote. And so as we think about T-commerce, it's click OK too. Um, And and I think click OK is a very easy thing to do. And if that gets you into a commerce experience, we believe that that can sort of lead to just sort of customer journeys that go from content to commerce and then back. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting. And I I guess, you know, what's interesting about Roku, right, is that you guys are uh, all about fast channels, right? Ad supported, free uh, channels. And I think, you know, we're seeing now the shift in the business also away from the subscription model and streaming and some other things. I'm curious, you know, what's next for, in terms of content, because you're right, content is king. That's why people tune in. What's next for the for the Roku channel? What are you guys working on, and and what do you see kind of uh, coming to us in in 2023? Yeah, so we have seen a lot of growth in fast, which is to say, live linear channels as part of the offering. Um, certainly, though, there are still tens of thousands of titles on demand. So uh, I think we, like most Avod services are going to be offering both experiences. There are people who really do want linear viewing, which is an interesting and sort of surprising turn of events in a way, because I think the world assumed that everything would be on demand forever. Nobody would ever want to turn on a channel and just let it play. And the opposite has proven to be true. So I think an on-demand offering and a fast offering, um, sometimes with the same content feeding each, is going to be part of the future for us. 
certainly when I was originally tapped to come to Roku, it was for originals specifically. And I think originals are going to continue to be an important part of it. And then I'm also really delighted that Spanish language programming is a growing and important part of our offering. Uh, we well, just the growing launched- demographic in this country, right? And and they need to be, uh, you know, Latinos need to be super served content. And I think, interestingly enough, um, not just in Spanish language, but also in English, which, you know, is, is an interesting uh, conversation also. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's Spanish language, it's English language, it's bilingual. It's also yeah. um, because we can sort of see how people are viewing our content. Uh, there's quite a lot of viewing with subtitles on, which suggests within the same household, there are members of the household who want to watch the show in Spanish, but also probably younger generations who are more comfortable with English, who sure. therefore want English subtitles on their Spanish language content. Um, all of that uh, is really exciting to me. And we also just launched the Roku channel in Mexico in October of 22. And so we now have between Mexico and the US, the two largest Spanish speaking populations on earth, which was news to me. Yeah. But I think by, by many measures, the US Spanish language audience is the second biggest after Mexico. That's really interesting. Now, in terms of in terms of scripted and unscripted, right? Because you've gone back and forth. You've been a writer. You've uh, produced for years unscripted content. Now you're overseeing both scripted and unscripted at Roku. Um, what what genre do you love the most? Like, if you were going to turn on the TV right now, what are you watching? And maybe that's not the same as what you like to make. But but what genre really pulls you in as a as a consumer as a viewer? Um, as as a viewer, I tend to watch things that don't feel like work when yeah. I want to yeah. relax. So actually, now that I'm doing both scripted and unscripted content for work... All you watch is Housewives all day long. It just it makes you relax. <laughs> I, find, I find myself watching a lot of sports, if I'm just being totally honest with you. Sports? Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but no, I, I, I think I, I've been a consumer of... of both genres. There are scripted shows that I absolutely love. I think um, as uh, as a pure consumer, probably scripted drama is where I gravitate toward the most, but I've spent most of my career making reality TV and I love it. And I think think great general entertainment reality TV entertains people in a way that almost nothing else does. And there are shows, including some we've worked on together, that really um, help shape mass culture in big ways. So, you know, if, if for, I were to, or worse. <laughs> if, if I were, if I were to point to couple to a couple that I'm really especially proud of having been involved with certainly queer eye in yeah. my, in my last job at ITV uh, just was an absolute joy to see what it did for so many people. And then to go a little further back um, to have been involved with shark tank early yeah. in my career was a really special show and special in very surprising ways. I think there was a whole generation of kids and teenagers that became interested and educated about business and entrepreneurship as a result of that show. And that's Absolutely. certainly nothing I could have ever predicted when we started out, but it was it was so fun to watch it all transpire. Well, let's talk about unscripted formats. So you've shepherded Game Changers, right? From Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader to Shark Tank, The Voice. Um, uh, queer eye, uh, you know what? What do you? What's your favorite format of all time? Like, if you had to sort of 
think about the evolution of the unscripted format, what would you point to and say, that's the one that's, that's, that's a perfect format. Um, understanding that I love all the shows I've been involved with equally, like my kids. Um, <laughs> no, I, I would, if, if forced to choose one, I think Shark Tank probably would be the one that I chose. And mm -hmm. certainly it was a format that before it ever came to the U S had been in a number of countries. Um, but I think, What's great about it is uh, there are rules, but within the rules, the interactions are profoundly real. And I think that yeah. that's, to me, the best kind of reality format, which is, yeah. you know, the game such as it is gets set up, but that's simply so that people can have an honest interaction within it. And I think the same was... Yeah. The same was and is true of Survivor, which is why I think they just announced, I don't know, what is this, season 47 season or something? 743, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, which is, which is um, uh, the rules are there to create exciting unpredictability rather than mm -hmm. to create predictability. And to put people in situations where their true, the true test of their personality comes out, right? Which is also about yep. casting and finding people who are going to be diverse in many kinds of ways, right? Uh, in terms of personality and background and and, and all of that. Um, you know, I, I'm curious. You know, and and you know, we go way back to Mark Burnett Productions when it was still called Mark Burnett Productions. Yeah. I think we started the same day, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know. How how has it changed? How how much harder is it now to develop and sell an original format? Right, like even Shark Tank came from Dragon's Den, which was an international format. Obviously, at ITV, you were dealing in international formats all the time. One of the one of the biggest international format uh, shops in the world. Um, how much harder is it now to get away an original format? Would you say in the U.S.? It's incredibly difficult. Um, because it's now a mature market. It's awfully hard to just sell off the strength of an idea. I think the demands on unscripted producers to do packaging beforehand are stronger than they've ever been. So it's difficult. On the other hand, every time you think it's impossible, something like Traders comes along, breaks right. through, and you're like, oh, that's just a really well-built format, well-cast, and it can still... Yeah. It can still happen. And, and now that format will travel the world, right? It'll it'll Correct. now it'll come to the US, it'll go everywhere, just just like uh, Mass Singer, which you know, uh, uh, I was just chatting with Jimmy Fox. He actually had the rights to Mass Singer before Craig Plestis and and set it up uh, I think at MTV and then it didn't go. And now Craig has this global global hit on um, on Fox. It's really interesting to see how much timing has to do with it too, right? When something's absolutely and uh and a and a bit of IP can have a first life um, and then find a second one. You know, Love Island, which was the hottest format we had at ITV during the time that I was there, at least globally, yeah. began life as a celebrity dating show in 2008. Then yeah. somebody took another look at it, re-envisioned it, and you know, the, rest is, the rest is a lot of villas all over right. the world. <laughs> The rest is the history of love. Right. Uh, so, okay, I have to ask because it's the name of our show, and this is this is what we're really uh, interested in. I think is 
What was your big break moment? Like take us back in time to when you were first getting ready to, to, to come to LA and break into the TV business or, or entertainment in general, right? Um, what, what did you come out here planning to do and, and, and how did you kind of get your start? I came out here to be a screenwriter and for the first few years that I was out here, I was a writer and managed to, and managed to make a living at it. Um, my big break moment was that uh, a classmate of mine at film school, uh, Charlie Morton, had a brother named Marcus who was an independent movie producer. Um, he needed a coverage person. I needed to figure out how to pay rent. So I started doing coverage for Marcus. Um, and then we built a relationship where I ended up becoming his writing partner. We sold several screenplays and it was just sort of how it's supposed to work, right? You go into a film school program, first of all, of course, to learn, but also to meet like-minded people who may provide that first step connection. And that was what happened for me. Really fortunately, I started uh, in a position where I was just writing summaries of scripts, uh, really classic first entertainment job, and then and then built that relationship over time. And, and Marcus was a generous enough individual that he had the ability to re-envision what I could be in his professional life. And so, you know, the, the lesson that I try to take from that is, you know, the person who is your assistant today or a junior member of staff on a show, uh, you should always be trying to envision what that person could be for you in three years, five years, 10 years time. Um, and people, people grow and relationships grow. So uh, I, I've certainly also benefited from working with lots of different people over the course of my career. And then there are a handful, uh, present company included, who you just have the joy of trying to collaborate with over and over again in different capacities. Indeed. You've, Indeed. Pitched, you've pitched me, I've pitched you, we've worked on shows together. I mean, it's, it, we, we, it's a pretty fluid business. And it's true. And, and you were one of the more generous people, one of the most generous people I met early on in this business when I came out here, uh, and, and, you know, introduced me to Allison who became my lawyer and, uh, and Mike Rizzo back in the day. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, certainly, um, you know, I think what's interesting to me is you are a very well liked, not just respected, but liked exec in this business. And, and I can attest one hell of a nice guy. Um, how important is reputation to doing well in, in, in this industry? I think reputation is certainly important. And, um, you know, you have to assume that, uh, it's a small enough business that, people will always sort of talk honestly about what you're like to work with. But yeah. beyond that, I just don't see any reason to treat people with anything other than dignity. And yep. I think that's just temperamental. That's not, right. that's right. not with any end goal in mind, except that's just how you should be in the world. Right. Right. You'll, you'll live a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what's the best career advice that you've ever gotten? Like, you know, whether it was early starting out or maybe even in a more mature, you know, uh, 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 time in your career, um, what's the piece of advice that really has stuck with you? Um, I had a really interesting moment 
in which this is during the time that I was at Turner in which we were about to make some really expensive decisions around a show, I think just for the sake of change. Um, and Kevin Riley, who was my boss at the time, sort of put a hard stop on the process and really made us all look at each other and say, how many more viewers are we going to gain by undertaking this change? Or are we just making change to make change? And once we all sort of stared at each other, we were like, <laughs> we will gain zero viewers by doing this. Let's not do it. Because I think, I think sometimes, I think sometimes the impulse, especially amongst creative people, which is really understandable, is to tinker with stuff, to improve it, or to think that you're improving it. But that was a great lesson for me because, uh, because it gave me the freedom to feel like if something is working, that's okay. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we took that approach actually very recently at Roku, and I'll give Brian Tannenbaum, who's our head of Unscripted, a lot of credit. Um, you know, we are doing a U.S. version of Great British Bake Off called The Great American Baking Show. Sure. And from the very beginning, Brian was like, why are we going to mess with the best Formula format in UK history, right? So right. we shot our version in the tent with Paul and Prue, with the team that makes the show in the UK. Obviously, we had American contestants, we have American hosts. But other than that, it was like, let's make the show that works. And yeah. it has worked for us. So that that That's was a great. long answer to a quick question. But I think I think that the the advice was it's okay if something's good. That's a that's a great note because or a great piece of advice because I think the other piece of this business is is everybody you know there, there's there's the the creative passion part of like I want to put my my creativity into this thing right like I want to I want to I want to I want to be able to to uh, uh, impact it in some way but then there's also the anxiety I think a lot of people feel in their jobs where they have to prove their value right and so a lot of times I think what happens too especially at networks where there's a changing of the guard somebody new comes in they feel like hey I need to I need to sh I need to show that this can be mine right and and I think you're right sometimes it's like you have to ask yourself why am I making this change or why am I uh, uh, you know, messing with a, a formula or a format that works. Um, it's a really great point. I think that you're right. Sometimes it's just sort of, um, you know, if we're being generous, it's creative people wanting to be creative. Sometimes there are uh, instances where it can veer into um, job justification. But I think, especially as a buyer, if you can buy something that's already really good, then you've right. done your job. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's, that's, uh, I, I think that's true with, with international formats, right? That's why people are looking around the world and saying, oh, yep. this is a really interesting thing that works over here. Um, maybe we can bring it to this territory and, and make a hit as well, right? But I want to go back to, to the big break moments in the origin story of David Eilenberg as, as we know him today. So you were writing scripts, you were selling screenplays, and, and, and then what happened? How, how did your career evolve from there? Um, well, I ended up writing on game shows, most notably on a game show called The Weakest Link, which was a BBC format, came over sure. to NBC, has recently been successfully rebooted with Jane Lynch. 
Um, and the transition into the world of reality TV, I believe, was game shows were sort of the closest to what the reality world needed as it was starting to explode. So as you know, because we worked together on it, I ended up um, in the task department, which was the challenge department of The Apprentice in its earliest days. And I think the reason that I got that job, which ended up changing the course of my career, was they were looking for people who understood game. Right. Because fundamentally, the challenges in any reality show are games that you have to devise, that have to be interesting, that have to have rules that make sense, that are fair and competitive. And game show was probably the closest to what was needed at the time. So that that too was a big break, um, sort of early stage of my career. That's really interesting. And I think, you know, um, various formats called it different things, right? The Apprentice called it tasks, Survivor calls it challenges, other people call it games, uh, but it's all the same thing. It's thinking about how can we put structure into the show that is going to, as we were talking about earlier, um, bring out human emotion and conflict and comedy and whatever else you might be looking for to actually tell a story in a, in a 44 minute hour. Right. Um, I'm curious what, what are some of the craziest stories you have from those early days at Mark Burnett productions or, or other places? Well, you were there, so you can tell these stories as easily (laughs) as I can, but the craziest part of the apprentice in those early days was that the entire city of New York was the game board. So I've still never been 24 seven, by the way, I I can remember going to Long Island to uh, get a bedazzler for a pair of jeans because the team decided that that's, that's what they should do for the challenge. Uh, And that was at like two in the morning, the only all night Michael's uh, craft store was in Long Island. And so suddenly I'm in Long Island buying a, you know, watching the contestants buy a bedazzler. So (laughs) <laughs> yep, I think every day was like that. And to this day, I don't think I've ever been involved in a show with that degree of unpredictability because you just literally never knew what they were going to do, where they were going to go, where you were going to find yourself in a van at three in the morning um, waiting right. for them to bedazzle something. So, I can't wait to take that one line uh, where you find yourself in a van and use that as the tease. That's going to be great. <laughs> text. <laughs> um, so, so the, those were, those were really interesting sort of wild west days of reality. And I think, I think it was also a moment where sort of legendary buyers like Mike, Mike Darnell would yeah. still buy in the room entirely sure. on instinct off a log line and you'd be off to the races. And I, I, I wish and some, that of, and some of the now. biggest shows came out of that. Right. And, and yeah. Mike was a, a master of that, a genius at that. Um, and, and now it takes a lot more work to get a show all the way through to a series. Right. It does. I would like to think that we at Roku, especially for unscripted shows are trying to devise a process that feels um, swift and doesn't uh, put too much onus on producers to develop and develop and develop because I think in unscripted, especially a concept is clear or it's not. Um, But I don't think, I don't think anybody operates with the autonomy that some of the buyers did back in those early days. 
I'm curious. So you went from producing on on Mark Burnett shows to then becoming an executive at the company. Um, what made you What made you decide you wanted to make that change and go over to sort of a full time role as opposed to you know a more uh, creative or or producer role? Sorry, I've never really decided anything. H. I think people <laughs> usually are like, you should try this, and in that case, um, Roy Bank, who had been at the company, uh, sort of looked at me and saw somebody who could be a developer instead of a producer, gave me that opportunity. And then uh, and then when things changed and Roy left the company, uh, Mark gave me the chance to run development. So I'm really happy that I made that transition. I, I think I certainly could have had uh, a great journey as a producer through the business. And I, I loved producing, but... I think I've found my calling as a creative executive, both on the sales side and the buyer side. And I'm very grateful that that, that opportunity came my way. That's, I mean, I think that's the thing when you, when you find the thing you really love in this business, it's, it's fantastic, right? Um, I'm curious what advice you would give to young producers who are entering the business now, you know, and, and are, are trying to, you know, find a way to sell and to, to get those producing jobs and, and to build their career. Well, I think for producers, particularly, they're already doing themselves the biggest favor they can do simply by spending some time actually making TV. Um, I think being a producer for some stretch of your career makes you better at any other job you're going to take because you've seen how the sausage actually gets made and that right. creates understanding, it creates empathy, and it ideally also makes you a more practical person in terms of how you approach your business life and your partnerships. Um, I think the person standing next to you on set is often the person who is going to create your next opportunity. So that just goes back to how you treat people and, and the friendships and connections that you make. Um, and then I, I think, uh, you know, there was a there was a phrase Ari Emanuel used in a talk that I saw him give that has always stuck with me, which is that you have to have emotional endurance uh, in this business. <laughs> and I think I think that's really true. Who better to say that, right? I mean, uh, truly, it, like he's seen it all. It really landed with me because I think even, even though this business offers a lot of joy and a lot of fun and the knowledge that you're creating joyful experiences for viewers... There are so many twists and turns. There's so much um, rejection, uh, whether you're the one receiving it or you're the one issuing it, that you do have to develop. I, I can't really phrase it any better. I just think emotional endurance is something that people should keep track of and, and understand is probably a necessity to have a long-term career in entertainment. Well, I mean, you've opened the door to emotional endurance now, so I have to ask the question: yeah. what's the what's the toughest moment you've had in your career? Like, like, let's talk about a moment where you had sort of a crisis of faith, or you thought like it's time to go to law school. You know what? What What are some of those moments for you? Um, I certainly have had a handful of those moments, and while I've been fortunate enough to be pretty consistently employed now 
for quite a stretch. Um, like many people early on, that was not necessarily the case. And, right. and I, I right. found, I mean, this may be my temperament, but I found unemployment, even short stretches of it, really scary. And like, it's yeah. one of the reasons I'm so, uh, I'm so proud of everything that you are doing at Hustle Up because I think you're helping you. people um, have less of those periods. Uh, uh, but there was certainly a stretch where the writing had dried up, the producing had dried up. I think it might've been during a stretch of sort of like recession in the early aughts. And yeah. I just started answering Craigslist ads ended up, <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, True, like you just, yeah. <laughs> just do what you need to do. And, um, and ended up answering a blind ad for an executive assistant, really very few details. Uh, and ended up for almost a year having the pleasure to work for Michael King of King World, who wow. was himself a legend. But wow. I think I, I don't think, think I knew that. I don't think I knew that. That was so. That was really early on when you were still writing screenplays and you were doing that to sort of pay the bills. Is it was that kind? Yeah, of Yeah, this was cool? this was sort of pre Mark Burnett. Um, yeah. And and yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's a way in which you just have to keep putting yourself out there and trust the universe, be, yeah. be humble about it and be open to a learning experience, whatever your actual job description is. So in that case, yeah. you know, I was working a desk, but I wouldn't have traded those, those months for anything actually in the end. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. I, I, I talked to somebody recently who is, um, you know, in their mid thirties and, and really just starting in the business. And, and, you know, we had the conversation about whether or not this person would want to be uh, on a desk and, a, you know, an assistant at an agency or a studio or whatever. And their feeling was, Oh, I'm too old. Right. And, and my, my sort of take on it was you're not too old because it's a great way to meet people, to build a cohort, to, to, you know, look around the room and say, all these people are going to be the people I can, have a relationship with and come up with, and and you learn a tremendous amount about the business, um, and and so that's incredibly valuable. I think um, generational diversity is the next frontier of DE and I, and we should be talking about it more. Frankly, yeah, I agree. Um, uh, I think that may be a topic for a whole other podcast interview, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad you're having those sorts of conversations because yeah. people are living longer, careers are longer, but also we need to support ourselves longer and um uh applicants have to maintain an open mind but even more so managers have to maintain an open mind um, totally in agree terms of, in terms of how they hire agreed and i think this is a business where there's no clear path right um you know i i, I quote uh, uh uh you know somebody who said this to me um it's an unprofessional profession right you go to dental school you go to business school you kind of know what you're doing what the steps are when you get out you get placed in a job whatever it is you come out of, of college or film school or whatever and you're like i want to go to hollywood i want to be a writer a editor a producer you have to figure out your career steps. And it's, it's a lot of hard work and, and emotional endurance, but also serendipity, right. And, and putting yourself out there for whatever serendipitous moment might happen. And, and that can be really hard. Uh, and you have to have a tremendous amount of, of faith and also patience. And, you know, part of what we're doing at Hustle Up is trying to make that easier and help people find their people and find opportunities and upskill and, and do that in a more, 
uh, efficient and and hopefully fruitful way. Um, but I but I think you know it's it's uh, it, we're in an interesting industry where you could enter it at any age and you're still trying to find your steps and find find the moments of serendipity. Um, yeah, I think I think um, uh, understanding what you're doing as a serendipity accelerant is a nice way to think about it. Um, and I think part of what you're pointing to, and it's what makes the business uh, scary sometimes, I, I will give my colleague Colin Davis credit for this turn of phrase, although it was in a different context, is on the one hand, there's really no barrier to entry, but on the other, right. there's also no barrier to exit. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm curious, so we've talked about, you know, the hard times, the emotional endurance. What's the most fun you've ever had on, on, on a particular show? Let's let's kind of leave it with 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 a particular show. Is there a show that sticks out where you're like, that was just a blast? So there was a show that we did uh, at ITV America for HBO Max called My Mom, Your Dad. Um, which was with Greg back Daniels. Back when HBO uh, Max made unscripted back yeah, in the old days. I know, I know. <laughs> um, uh, Jen O'Connell and her team commissioned it. it She's was amazing. Show, it, it was a show that got delayed by COVID. So it was really, I mean, it was two and a half years wow. essentially of waiting until it was feasible to make it almost. Um, and the whole show rested on a ruse, which is the scariest thing in the world. Yes. when you're producing because yes. if the ruse doesn't work and the gag doesn't work there's no way out yeah. and on day one once we started like once we really saw it working we were like just giddy right and that's <laughs> and that's a very that's a really fun feeling and actually that format is now selling in countries around the world they did it in australia i think they're doing it in the uk and that's actually kind of unusual for a format yeah. to start in the u.s and then that's right go travel around. But that's a recent experience where it was just, it was still a, a scary wild shoot, but it was a scary wild shoot with um, quite a lot of moments of just giddiness and glee. Um, and so, so uh, that's one I would point to. Recently. That's why I, I, I've only done one show that was really predicated on a ruse. We sold a show to Mike Darnell when he was, uh, you know, uh, still at Fox. And yep. uh, it was it was called I Want to Marry Harry. And the ruse was we were taking all these American girls who thought they were on a dating show with Prince Harry. This was obviously before he was married. Uh, and we found an incredible Harry lookalike. Uh, um, uh, Danny at Zigzag, our partner, uh, I was at, Mark, uh, I was at uh, Ryan Seacrest's company at the time, and we partnered with Zigzag on this this format and um and he really did he looked like harry to the point where i took him out one night while we were shooting and he was having a crisis of, of confidence or whatever and i took him out to a local pub where we were shooting in england uh at this fancy rather castle-like location and uh and we were in the press the next day that uh that that prince harry was seen with an unidentified woman <laughs> i was the unidentified woman <laughs> so the ruse worked in the local press but we were really worried that these girls were going to start to question these young women were going to start to question whether it was really harry or not we had to have some fail safes that we baked in in case that happened and it was it was a wild ride but it was it was it was terrifying you know like what are we going to do if this if we can't pull this off right that's really funny. I hope you have whatever article or local news clip that was somewhere. It was like it was like the the Reading on Thames uh, 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 
Herald or something like that, right? That's fantastic. <laughs> um, so, so I'm curious about your your kind of next steps in your career. So you you started as an executive at Mark Burnett for the first time, and then and then how did you kind of move move from there? Um, so I had been with Mark for quite some time, first as a producer and then running his development. Uh, I had gotten to know Michael Wright, who at that time was the head of TNT and TBS. Um, he gave me a quite out of the blue call just to say, you know, hey, we're going to try to do unscripted in a real way at these networks for the first time. Would you be interested? Um, I had not done a network job at that point. Those were really big, healthy, exciting cable nets. And also... Yeah you know, spoke to a big, broad general audience, which is which is where I've spent most of my creative life um, yep. uh, programming to. And so uh, I, I made that transition, had four years at Turner, had a lot of shows that we did that I loved, including, um, including one that's still on, although now on Oxygen, which is Cold Justice, that's got to be pushing right. 200 episodes at this point. Um, and uh, and then transitioned back to the buy side to go to ITV. So I have sort of been going back and forth a bit. I I am really now very energized about the possibilities at Roku. I think um, the AVOD sector was already where the action was going to be these next few years. Yeah. And then there are some things happening that I think make it even more so. And so lucky me. Uh, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to have a number of these big opportunities, but, but at each stop along the way, I think general entertainment has been where my heart is and what I've been trying to develop and program. Um, and you know, that goes all the way back to my earliest upbringing, um, uh, as a, as a theater kid, which is just the, the joy of bringing something to an audience who really appreciates it and is able to have an entertainment time. Well, and your dad was the artistic director of uh, one of the, the leading regional theaters in the country, right? In San yeah. Francisco. Yep. He, my dad uh, was the artistic director of a theater called the Magic Theater, which was a new plays theater um, that did a lot of amazing work. Uh, but I think actually um, perhaps the thing that he did in my childhood that prepared me most of all for the world of unscripted TV was he ran a thing called the new vaudeville festival, which was jugglers, clowns, contortionists, <laughs> everything you could sort of imagine from uh, a circus standpoint. Um, and I think just the pure entertainment value of that imprinted a taste for what would then draw me to reality TV as I went on. How old were you when you first went to the, to the, to the festival? That was a, I, I think that must have been at a very critical sort of like when I was like 10 to 13 years old. So yeah. it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting crowd to spend those formative years amongst. But you did not choose a life as a contortionist. That would have been <laughs> a very poor career choice on my part for a number of reasons. This is the advice, folks, that David Eilenberg is yeah, giving yeah. you today. Do not pursue the career of the contortionist. Yes. Um, so I, I would love to switch it up for a few minutes and ask you some questions about the TV you love to watch. I know we've talked a little bit about that, but mm -hmm. what are you watching right now? What 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 are what's you know in your queue that you're excited to get back to tonight? 
Well, this is a very Roku thing to do, H, because we do this in almost every meeting and almost every update, which is what are nice. you streaming? I think it's really important just to talk about that and celebrate what's yeah. awesome on TV. So uh, my family and I just watched and loved everything everywhere all at once. I thought yes. it is like deeply deserving of all of the hype and produced by a couple of, the... of Buffalo partners, Agbo and a 24 and an amazing film. Yeah. Just, just an amazing. And also I thought really moving film. Um, we also loved RRR and then uh, just watched slow horses seasons one and two on Apple and can't wait for season three. So we've been on a roll lately nice. in terms of stuff that we really like. Also an offbeat suggestion although it seems to now be gathering steam. If you haven't watched Kunk on Earth, which is a Netflix BBC um, sort of uh, parody civilization style documentary. Um, so think sort of David Attenborough meets Ali G. It's nice. It's pretty awesome. That's great. Th those are good ones. I, it's interesting. I haven't seen Slow Horses, so now I'm going to put that in the queue. Um, we, I, you know, it's interesting. I've been really leaning toward comedy lately. I think because the world just seems like a very stressful place, uh, and you know, uh, you know, building a company and all of that. I want to like at night go and watch something that is uh, at least uh, comedic in, in some aspect of its tone. So it's interesting how you reach for the thing, as you were saying earlier, that, uh, can give you a little bit of, uh, of, of joy and relief at the end of the day. I think, I think there is a hunger for comedy right now. And I say that not just anecdotally, but also because I work for a platform company and I can tell you <laughs> that there is a hunger for comedy right now. You've got the um, data. You've got the data. And certainly, uh, in early days of Roku originals, I think we've been veering toward comedy. Our, our, arguably, our breakout original thus far was weird. The Al Yankovic story, which, if you haven't seen it, is just an absolute delightful exercise in deadpan comedy of the sort that you sort of haven't seen since Airplane. Um, wow. And and that may end up being a brand defining film for us. So uh, I think it's great to bring comedy into the world. There hasn't been enough of it lately. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Everybody's talking about The Last of Us, which, you know, I I, I think is a remarkable show. Um, but I, I can't do sort of dystopia right now. It's I, I don't have it in me. Uh, it's interesting. We'll have to find a comedic dystopia for you. That's good. I like that. Let's develop that as a new genre. Now, let's talk about new genres, because at Roku, you guys are doing the reality rom-com, right? Um Meet me in Paris. I, I, I gather that's doing well for you guys. How, how important do you think it is to uh, reinvent genres and break genres and find new ways, whether it's a ruse or it's a mixture of scripted and unscripted? Um, meet me in Paris, which came to us from Reese Witherspoon and Zoe Saldana's companies uh, and you know was shepherded by Brian Tannenbaum, who's our head of unscripted, is exactly what you just described. It's a reality rom-com. So it's an unscripted dating journey, but cut as a 90 minute feature. It has yeah. performed really, really nicely for us. Um, and I think people are very open to mashups. There's a couple of other things that I would observe about that particular project beyond the fact that I think it was executed really well. Um, it's something where you can speak to multiple fandoms, which I think is very important. So. That's something where if you're a fan of feature rom-coms 
that are scripted, you might sample it. And if you're a fan of The Bachelor, you might sample it. So there are yeah. different reasons for different audiences to give it a try. I, I also think that some of these things, including Weird, including um, the Great American Baking Show, Celebrity Holiday, which also performed for us, I, I think they benefit from being closed-ended experiences. And so while we are certainly programming plenty of series that are meant to have full seasons and recur, I'm interested in the fact that people are, I believe, also gravitating toward things where you know you're just signing up for an evening. Because I think yeah. I think as we... There's no huge commitment, right? Whether that's binging it or waiting for it week over week over week, right? That's right. That's right. I don't... I, and and here I have no data to back it up. This is just instinctual on my part. I, I, I think that there is an appetite for... I turn on my TV Saturday night. I'm presented something to watch. And the commitment I'm making is just to have a great Saturday night. Like I'm yeah. not... I'm not needing to emotionally and mentally prepare to sign up for eight seasons of something. Um, and that's, I don't know, we'll watch that trend. That's interesting. That's interesting. What show is on right now, scripted or unscripted, that you wish uh, I would have liked to have made that show? Like, I wish I wish that show was my baby. Yeah, my pat answer to this is always Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai is the show <laughs> I'm most envious of. I think it would have been a perfect Roku show. Uh, you know, kudos to YouTube for greenlighting it. Kudos to Netflix for grabbing it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a show that reboots IP, but in a completely fresh and unexpected way, because I think everybody is looking at stuff with brand equity. But once you have brand equity, there's also the question of what do you do with it? Because you right. can do something right. that's incredibly expected or you can do what they did. And I think it's just a delight. That's interesting. I wouldn't have expected you to say Cobra Kai. That is so interesting. All right. Well, I I, I like it. I like the I like the strategy behind it. Yeah. I'm curious what you're most excited about for 2023. Where do you think that the industry in general is headed? Obviously, we've been in a moment of contraction. There's been a lot of bad news around the industry in the first quarter. Um, what are you optimistic about in in 2023? It's certainly been a choppy time for the industry and a confusing time for the broader economy. And I think that's yeah. played out in all kinds of different ways. I look forward to recovery from that, I hope in the very near future, and seeing what the new industry emerges as, because the industry will always find a way to revitalize itself. Um, I think one thing that I'm really interested to see is if this is the moment where traditional TV and the creator world that's existed mostly on platforms like YouTube and TikTok mm -hmm. really do find their way to one another. So I'm very interested in what companies like Night Media are doing. I'm interested to see whether we can finally make TV an attractive destination for the biggest stars of YouTube. And then I'm interested to see how properties that um, begin life on TV find different lives on other platforms in more sophisticated and immersive ways. So that's something I'm just, I'm feeling like that's finally going to take shape because we've been talking about it for, for a, a really long time, long time now. Yeah. Um, and I feel like in some way or another, that dam is going to break finally in a very interesting way. And I can't wait to see what that is and maybe hopefully be a part of it. 
That's really interesting. So, you know, I, I think, again, we'll go back in time to when you and I were both, uh, uh, you know, producers or, or maybe just beginning our executive careers. <clears throat> I can remember YouTube launched all these channels and, and Reveille Grower Shine at that point grabbed one up. We were doing the gaming channel and, you know, it was going to be this big conversion moment where, where YouTube stars were going to become TV stars. And the hardest part was the, the, the financials of it, right? Because as a creator on YouTube and now to a certain extent, TikTok, although they've had a harder time monetizing it, creators can make a lot of money. And then, you know, they come to a, let's just assume an unscripted deal. And it's like, we're going to pay you $3,000 an episode or whatever it looks like. Right. And the, and the, the ownership isn't there typically. And the, the, you know, the fees are, are not what they're used to getting as a rev share. And it's been hard to figure out how to make that math work for both sides of the equation. Do you think that's changing in the era of streaming where, where there's more opportunity for uh, creative deal-making? I do think that there's going to be more opportunity for creative deal-making. I think you're seeing that happen in general, as certain companies now start to back away from the cost plus model that's dominated yeah. Yeah. a lot of how TV buying has taken place the last several years, all of a sudden we're all talking now about windowing and territories. And it's like, you know, overnight, everything is being- What's old is together. new again. No, very much so. <laughs> but I think, I think what's good about that is that in those kinds of deals, creators can benefit in success. They don't get bought out up top. Um, right. and I think in bringing those digital creators further into the fold, that will feel more familiar. If there's a way to say, you really will continue to succeed in success, that is what they're used to in the digital economy. Right. And I also think that there's convergence happening just because there are so many people streaming so much YouTube on their TVs, which wasn't always the case. I think early yeah. YouTube consumption, you would have pro probably thought of as taking place on laptops and phones, exactly, and iPads, but tons of people are watching hours and hours and hours of YouTube on their TVs, and just that adjacency, I think, will eventually yield connectivity, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I think it's going to be really interesting also to see how a platform like TikTok uh evolves, right? Uh, assuming they're still allowed to do business in the US. Uh, uh, you know, I think, um, listen, it's interesting. My my lovely wife, who is not uh, a tween or a teen, uh, is on TikTok all the time now, right? So it's, it's all ages are turning to TikTok for different kinds of content. For her recently, it was looking for the Mediterranean diet ideas, right? Um, and it's becoming the new YouTube because it's no longer just people singing songs, you know, karaoke songs or doing a dance to a song. It's now real content and people are being discovered off of it. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that pl platform continues to evolve. And does it just become a place where you discover people that you take to a different platform or do they find a way to, to monetize all that in a more effective way? It's, it's, uh, I think it's going to be the next frontier, right? I totally agree with that. I think TikTok um, is going to play a very interesting role in the larger landscape that's still a little bit TBD. I also think um, interactive platforms like Minecraft, like Roblox, yes. um, Fortnite yeah. are going to continue to be more and more important. Um, I can't remember whose observation this was, so I apologize. If I remembered, I would cite you. 
but there was somebody who said, uh, the Netflix algorithm learns something new about you every 45 minutes. The TikTok algorithm learns something new about you every 45 seconds. And that's yeah. an interesting observation and part of why I think that platform has become so powerful so fast. I think that's right. And I think, you know, Fortnite has proven now that they can launch music artists, they can launch new albums, they can do live concerts. A lot of things can be baked into what was a video game. And that also <clears throat> means that you spend more time on a single, uh, a single platform like Fortnite or, or, you know, a platform like Roblox and it, it diversifies their demographic, right? Which is something the gaming industry really needs is to bring more diversity into their core user base um, to continue to grow their business. I'm curious um, if you think Roku is going to move in the direction of short form content, of working with more creators. Is there sort of a, a game plan for that that you can talk about? We've made some early forays to talk to the creator community about potentially sort of finding ways into our platform. But I think uh, in the near term, it's actually sort of the reverse of what you just said. So one of the big first steps that Roku Originals took was to acquire the Quibi library. And a lot of that Quibi content was then released on Roku. And that was tremendous for learnings. And some of them performed well enough that we renewed them. But actually, um, what we're commissioning now are more traditional narrative length, half hours, hours, features and specials. So, so qu not quite as much short firm, at least in this first wave. Interesting. Really interesting. Well, I, I think that brings us uh, pretty close to the close of our hour, Dave. Thank you so much for sharing the story of your big break with us and, and your career, you know, both as a creative and, and as an executive. It's incredibly inspiring and you are one hell of a nice guy. So uh, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. And again, um, congratulations on everything you're doing with Hustle Up on the incredible growth of the company and Thank you. everything you're doing for the community as a result. I think you're just making entertainment better. So I appreciate you having me. Well, that's that's our goal. And, and that's it for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Please join us for future episodes featuring production company CEOs, producers, writers, and more. Our theme music for this episode was composed by Hustle Up member Lewis Robert King, and we'll be featuring different themes from other Hustle Up composers in future episodes. If you like what you hear, please let us know. And thanks so much for listening. Let's hustle up. <laughs>